I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Hi. The snack episode. What up? Today, we have some listener mail. Ooh. JJ. Yep. What is the first... Uh, question. Dear introverts, is it ever appropriate to cry when assisting with the euthanasia? I get the idea that it's frowned upon in our profession, but sometimes I can't help but cry. That is a good question. How to answer that question. I think that it is appropriate to cry sometimes. Yeah. What do you think? I feel like, I mean, whatever you're feeling, you can't. I mean, you don't want to be overly dramatic, but Sometimes you can't help it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you tear up a little bit, it's it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes mean, it does, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on, and sometimes you can kind of gauge to how the owner is. Some owners mm-hmm. are going to be receptive and some of them are going to, you know, not even be paying attention to what you're doing, to be honest. So yeah. I think it's a tough question. Uh, so I, I mean, I personally have cried during euthanasias before. I mean, every one of them, no. No, no. But the maybe the very long term patients, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in veterinary medicine, you see a patient as a puppy or a kitten and then you're still with it when you euthanize it uh, more than a decade later. Mm -hmm. And so when you form that sort of a bond with an owner and with a pet, I think that it would be a little weird to not Mm -hmm. have some emotion about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's, I definitely have cried. Yeah. And sometimes I haven't cried during the procedure necessarily, but afterward. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it is appropriate sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I've ever had a situation where someone would be offended mm-hmm. that you cried. I mean, it, I guess it depends on how you cry. Yeah. I can't think of a a situation where I had like an owner get offended by me or a staff member crying, but I have had situations or, and I, I know that this is a habit of some types of personalities where maybe the, the owner might see the staff displaying emotion and then start to try to comfort the staff. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I've heard other veterinary professionals sort of say you should never cry because that's taking something away from the owner's experience. Now, I don't know if I agree to that extent, because if you as an individual feel the need to apologize and comfort any other person who's in distress, even when you yourself are in distress, that's not a them issue. That's a you issue. So I don't know that we can take the responsibility of the owner's feelings on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just depends on the person. The only thing that I kind of steered clear from is to be super touchy feely with a client. Mm, yeah, I mean, I know there's clients out there that would appreciate, you know, a hand on the shoulder or a hug or something, but. There's a lot that don't. I know yep. I would I would be uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So Me too. I have a tendency to just, you know, my plan when I was in there was always to 
you know, assist with whatever needed to be done. But when my role was over, I get the heck out. Yeah. I will stay outside the door in case anybody needs anything. But I just, you know, I, if you have a whole lot of people in there, it makes it uncomfortable. A whole lot of staff, not, you know, client mm-hmm. personnel. But I just, you know, I don't, to me, that's kind of a private thing. And that that's something that the client needs to share with their now deceased or about to be deceased pet. and. I don't, you know, it's not a something to be a spectacle. So yeah. I try not to make it a big deal and just kind of, you know, if it's somebody that starts reaching for me, then I'll be like, okay, hug, hug. And then again, skedaddle. But everybody's different. You can't, there's not a rule for all. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's not one rule for every type of situation. And, um, you know, I think that there are providers certainly, and staff that um, maybe are a little bit more adept at picking up on the cues of what owners would prefer, the experience that they would wish to have. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had clients respond to me becoming emotional during a euthanasia in a variety of ways, from neutrality to not even recognizing what was happening, to saying, like, I appreciate you showing emotion that lets me know that you care to, again, them trying to comfort me. I've never had someone be like, fuck you, you know, mm-hmm. I've never had that. Now, I do think that, you know, if this is a one-off thing, say you're seeing the patient in the ER, you don't know them, you don't know the clients at all, then that is, to me, a little bit of a different scenario than a, than a patient and a client that you've really built a strong relationship with over a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I think it might be more odd seeming for you to display of a lot of emotion during yeah. euthanasia, like in an ER setting. And I would almost wonder why this question is coming up for you. You know, mm-hmm. is is it that we're having trouble not crying in every euthanasia, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, maybe indicates that there's some personal work there that needs to be done. But uh, if it's, you know, kind of beating yourself up about I showed some emotion in a euthanasia where I've been seeing the client for a really long time and I have a strong emotional bond with the patient, then I don't think we need to get too worried about that. I think that's just being normal. Yeah. Although, I mean, some of the ones that have gotten to me have been people that I didn't even know that well. Really? But it was it was a situation where it was just this big old buff dude came in with a tiny dog and it was like his you know all he had in the world and he was apparently had been overseas and came back and his dog had been waiting on him even though his wife left him and as the dog got him through a lot and now it's time for the dog to go and he's like laying in the floor crying like a baby i'm getting sad yeah about i see you bringing up it's <laughs> bringing up emotion for you right now uh, stuff like that that'll that that'll get me yeah well and what is it about that you think that something about uh you mentioned specifically you know like a man showing emotion i don't know <laughs> couldn't tell you other certainly than, that's not about the patient right that's yeah i don't know yeah i there's no telling but typically if it's is if, if it's a dude and you know them showing emotion over their little pet yeah that that one that'll get you that gets me you know you're not the first person that i have uh, heard say that 
I think that that is a thing, uh, like, I think that that's a sentiment that I have commonly encountered in veterinary medicine is, like, I can't, I can't emotionally handle a crying man for some reason (laughs) is like a thing. And I think that that is, like, in that kind of a situation, I do think, not that it's wrong or bad, I mean, because it's not, it's not wrong or bad, it's just you fill in how you feel. But I do think that that might be less about, like, the patient and the owner and the connection you share with them and more about some of your own stuff. Yeah. Like, for example, uh, one that I have is any euthanasia that sort of reminds me of the circumstances of um, euthanasia of my own pet, Mm -hmm. then I'll start to become emotional. And in those cases, I do try to maybe reel it in a little bit more or just be aware, hey, this is a similarly aged cat, for example, or in a similar situation. Maybe it's in the same room Mm -hmm. where my patient, where where my own pet was euthanized, right? And I can kind of know, like, this might be a high emotion situation for me that's my stuff and not about the connection that I share with the patient. So I guess I personally try to kind of work on that. Mm that's my opinion that's not based on fact or research or anything like that that's strictly an opinion of mine and a clinical sentiment of mine so i think it might be interesting i did not look up anything literature wise but i wonder if anyone has looked at owner impressions post euthanasia of whether staff emotion made a difference in their experience yeah that would be very interesting to look at Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if it's been done. It might be a challenging study to conduct. Yeah. Um, but I think it would be um, helpful to know the answer to that kind of question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can save my own point of view. I, it doesn't bother me if somebody is, you know, crying when it's my own animal. Yeah. Um, I just mainly, because I'm a control freak anyway, I know control is an illusion, but <laughs> I'm like, you know, if I know that's coming, I try to, I guess, handle all the logistics. And But even doing that, sometimes it's, they're never going to go exactly how you want it to go. But. Yeah. Well, so I think, you know, the, the OP, <laughs> mm-hmm. original poster here, the, the, the person who sent this in, you know, they're not saying anything about like, can I have advice? Um, but they're going to get it, though, because <laughs> that's what the podcast is about. So um, my advice would be if you're finding yourself in situations where you're becoming emotional during euthanasias and it's not so much a connection between you and the patient or you and the client, um, it's more internal stuff. I think then that there's time and opportunity for you to work on that should you want to. So if you wanted to work on those kinds of things, then you might consider potentially participating in more euthanasias for a while. Maybe you ask, hey, can I be assigned to them because I need to kind of practice my emotional regulation? Okay. And there's a whole host of emotional regulation skills uh, that you can work on in therapy um, or self-help books uh, associated with this. The one in particular that I can recommend that's more along the self-help line is um, a type of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. And um, the author's name, (laughs) 
The last name is D-I-J-K, okay? I'm not sure how you pronounce that other than Deke. <laughs> so anyway, Sherry Von Deke, D-I-J-K. And um, there's uh, one for adults and one for kids. And the one for adults is called Calming the Emotional Storm. And um, it uh, reviews a lot of the DBT, emotional regulation, and distress tolerance techniques. And I think that that might be particularly helpful in a case like this if you're wanting to kind of get well-practiced at detecting your own emotions and then being able to regulate your behaviors responsibly. because. Crying is a behavior, right? Sadness, regret, grief, all of those things are emotions. But crying is a behavior. So technically, if you want to learn to control that, there are some techniques you can use. So I would check that out. And then I'll say personally that when I first started working ER, I found that it was not necessarily, again, my emotional connection to a scenario that would predict whether I would cry. It was actually my, like, level of overwhelm in general. So if it was near the end of a 15-hour shift, I might be more likely mm-hmm. to show emotion than if it was hour one, yeah. right? If I had already euthanized uh, 10 patients, the 11th one is going to be harder, right, mm-hmm. than the second one, okay? And so when I started noticing that, I was like, I personally want to work on this for me. I'm not saying everyone has to. I'm saying that's what I chose. And so in order to sort of knock myself out of this um, as a distraction technique, distraction is a common way to emotionally regulate in the moment. You process it later. That part's important. You don't only distract, Mm -hmm. but distraction in the moment can help you not make a situation worse, okay? So a way that I have of distracting is that I would literally, I have a euthanasia song that I sing in my head, okay? It's to the tune of, I don't know the name of the song. It's, you can dance if you want to. You can lean Safety on. dance. Okay, there it is. So it's, you know, you can cry if you want to. You can leave your tears behind. And at, at different points, I have had full lyrics to it. I don't remember them all. Mostly because when I get to that second, you know, line, it generally is like, okay, that that's fine. And I found that I if I give myself permission to feel and show emotion, I'm less likely to do so than if I try to clamp down and be like, don't cry, whatever you do, then that'll be really unsuccessful. Yeah, my technique was trying to bite the inside of my mouth to distract my tear ducts. But I feel like that would make me cry worse because my mouth hurts. (laughs) It it wasn't the best. It was more of a, it was definitely one of those, don't think about something else. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, My thought is it's okay if you cry. It's okay if you don't. Um, As long as you check in with yourself and make sure that you're doing some good self-care later. And then if you want to change how you're approaching euthanasia or the behaviors that you have surrounding those emotions, then there are methods to address that. So I like it. Okay. Well, so we have a second listener mail item. JJ, what is the next letter? Dear introverts, I am the only person in my family who works in the veterinary field. My family members are not necessarily against having pets, but they do not provide the level of care for their pets that I choose to provide for mine. And they often make fun of people who do provide a high level of care for their animals. 
One of my family members recently purchased a dog, and it is a very high-maintenance breed. Think about a breed with high grooming needs, along with genetic risk factors for several major expensive illnesses. And I'm worried about dealing with family conversations surrounding the care of this pet, particularly the cost at upcoming holiday functions. What can I do to avoid these conversations or ignore it when I overhear them complaining about the cost of care in an uneducated way? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. We got the holidays coming up. We just had Thanksgiving. We're headed into Christmas time and other, you know, big holidays. Uh, so I think this is a timely question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is a hard one. I, I will say that I definitely can identify with the feeling of kind of being the main animal person in a family of people who are less animal people (laughs) like less people you know um it's a it's a that's a tricky place to be yeah yeah if like all of your if you're in a group of people who all sort of have a certain ethic about the role that animals play in society and yours is super different that can be very challenging um as far as interactions go Mm -hmm. yeah i i I know um, there's probably people in my family that make fun of me for all the things that I do for my dogs. And I mean, I I know that I have a problem, but I don't have any children. You have a problem? Yeah. What was your problem? I mean, the amount of money that is spent on, you know, things for my animals and things that we do with my animals, but it makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And look, you could be into hardcore drugs or something, JJ. True. That's very expensive. True. I mean, and like I said, I don't have children. My animals are my children, and I I enjoy doing things with them and for them. And certainly, as a veterinarian, okay, I have spent way more money on my animals than many people would think is reasonable. You know, yeah. other people buy expensive cars and shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hear you. I, I I know that there was probably more than one person that looked at me funny when I'm like, yeah, I took my dog to a dental specialist mm-hmm. for his extractions. Yeah, but you did. he had a shark mouth. And was it expensive? Sure. Sure. But I mean, I also didn't want to have to deal with dental problems for the rest of his life. And then, I mean, I have a damn kitten that, you know, that I took in off the streets with the giant leg wound and she got septic and had to have like an emergency amputation (laughs) uh, while I was out of town with the specialist and everything. Mm -hmm. Now, could I have had a regular vet do that or, you know, run her up the road and try to like do the cheapy way? Yeah, I could have. Could I try to have limped her along through the weekend and get her to a regular vet? Sure. But was that the medically best thing? No. So I was like, take her leg off now, put her in the hospital, you know, in the ICU. I'll just pay whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah. I did. Like, And I know you and I, I both are kind of speaking from a position of some privilege as well. Sure. Because we know people. Yeah. We have the means to handle, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, we're both child-free. So mm-hmm. that helps yeah. as far as money. Anyway. And, and I, I understand <laughs> that. And I try to think about that whenever, I don't know, sometimes I... I think the, the worst thing I see is when someone on the Internet is like asking, where can I take my dog for veterinary services? And I see like the recommendations and I'm like, you need to ask a different question. You need to ask, where can I take my dog or cat for veterinary services 
and what type of care is provided, mm-hmm. what type, this is the type of care that I expect, because that's a, a, a huge spectrum. Right. And right. where, you know, someone may be coming from a place of, I'm recommending this place because they're very cheap. Well, in order to, for things to be super cheap, you may not do all the things that some owners expect being done for their animals. So it's, it's, I don't know, it's a sticky situation, but I guess the way that I typically handle that is same probably that you would do it and that you try to figure out what the goal is. What's, what's the pet owner goal? Sure. Sure. And even if their goal falls short of what you would do for yours, at the end of the day, it's their animal. Uh-huh. And as if they're as long as they're not doing anything that's going to endanger the animal's health or life, there's not much you can do. Yeah. And I think maybe in particular, if we're dealing with family, the letter mentions like, what can I do to deal with people's uneducated comments? And I think that dealing with uneducated comments from the general public is one thing also difficult. But dealing with uneducated comments from your own family is like worse for me, not only because you're like these bitches, you know, like (laughs) you're like, come on, like I've been around you this long and you can't answer the question on your own, like that kind of a thing. But then also, and this might just be my experience, but (laughs) I don't think so. I think this is a universal experience, like especially if it comes to maybe dealing with parents or siblings or maybe older relatives, people who view you as your small self first, your childlike self first, they have a really hard time listening to you and imagining you as an authority on the subject. Mm -hmm. And that to me has been the hardest part, (laughs) I think, of navigating the whole veterinary family communication situation is that I often will get the calls and the texts and stuff like that if something's wrong. Yet when I'm like, here is what I think you should do based on what you're telling me, a lot of the time I will get sort of dismissed. And I think it's easier for people to dismiss you if they kind of remember you as a child or someone they grew up with is like, surely this person can't be like important or like knowledgeable about what they're doing. I don't know. And the field too, like I, and I'm not saying that anybody in my family ever intentionally made me feel this way. This is probably more my perception, but I have several family members that are in human medical uh, positions. And whenever, you know, they would talk shop, if I got involved, it was almost I kind of just felt like it was like, oh, but you're in vet med. That's not the same thing. You're oh, not for sure. Yeah, it's not real medicine. You're just playing with puppies <laughs> and kittens all day. <laughs> and I'm just like, but hey, have you ever put a central line in a dog? Because I have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've put a central line in a human, but it's just I don't know. It, it, it like I said, it was probably more my perception in any way because I could get paranoid and, but. So that can kind of be a factor, I think, sometimes is that it's vet med. So Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be something that's expensive or it should be just, you know, you bring your dog in and get a shot and then you go home. It shouldn't be more detailed than that. Yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) I think it's very challenging to have rabies only friends and family members when you yourself are like a 
do fucking everything, take my kitten to the specialists and have yeah. it like amputated by a surgeon <laughs> instead of doing it yourself because you're like, I don't want it to aspirate. You know, like mm-hmm. I think that that's the, you know, those sets of people have different goals, as you pointed out. And so maybe approaching it from a like my goal doesn't have to be their goal standpoint even if they're not extending you the same benefit, which I recognize is hard, mm-hmm. might help. Yeah. <laughs> so the question says, like, what can I do to avoid these conversations or ignore it when I'm overhearing complaints about the cost of walk care? Walk away. Yeah, just walk Remove away. yourself from the situation. You know, I love my family. I love hanging out with them. Sometimes I hear things that make me kind of go like, what? And, (laughs) but, you know, the good far outweighs anything that makes me go, what? So I continue to see my family. I mean, there's sometimes that there's comments made about the vet med field in general, or the main thing is prices of things. Sure. And I'm sometimes I hear someone complain about a certain price of something, and I'm just like, first of all, that's not that expensive. When you think about some vet bills can be in the tens of thousands. Yeah. Or what would it be equivalent for humans? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I I had someone the other day that was complaining to me about the cost of a nail trim. And the price that they said to me was like not even that high when compared to nail trims at other clinics. You know what I'm saying? I was like, damn, they're complaining about a bargain basement nail Mm -hmm. trim fee or whatever. And so I said to them, Like, I wouldn't do it for less than that. And I also said, when you go have your nails trimmed as a person, how much does it cost you? And they just looked at me. And, you know, know, you're willingly (laughs) having your nails trimmed. You're not, you know. You're not being combative. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. One would assume Mm -hmm. that you didn't try to karate chop your nail technician. It didn't take three motherfuckers to hold you down. That's right. Although you, you shouldn't do that. You also didn't poop on them or like try Anal to bite gland. them. Yeah. You didn't we weren't had you didn't have to be muzzled. <laughs> like it was generally you, you didn't require trazodone. <laughs> right. It's a generally a consenting experience. Yeah. So anyway, uh <laughs> yeah, I like JJ's tactic of like walk the other direction or just try to ignore it, like <sighs> deep breathing, breathe through it. Um, especially if you get the impression that the other person is only trying to get a rise out of you, mm-hmm. then having a big negative reaction is like kind of what they want. Mm-hmm. And even though it might feel satisfying to kind of like stand your ground and argue with them, recognizing that people that try to get a rise out of you are very creepily rewarded by the rise that they get out of you, like to withhold that from them is yeah probably good yeah <laughs> like, you gotta look at the bigger picture like do you want to continue have a relationship with this person that's positive then you know maybe they're having a really bad day don't take the bait just mm-hmm. i mean if they keep pressing me however and it's just like why is it that these things are so expensive i just remember 20 years ago i could take my dog in for a rabies shot and i'm like 20 years ago, things were a lot different. Yeah. In every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. Lots of things. I'm like, I shouldn't, you know, I feel I'm old enough now where I feel weird when I go to a fast food restaurant and it's like 20 something bucks. And I'm like, but I remember I could get a meal for $5. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a satisfying full meal. It wasn't just, you know, a, one fry, a yeah. small fry. It was, you know, I also remember taking my paycheck every two weeks. 
and get $20 out of it, fill up my tank up, and that would last two weeks. LOL. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So I get it. Shit's expensive. But you know what? You don't have to have an animal. You don't. And I don't know. I just, it hurts my feelings when, especially if someone has a lot of animals. Yeah. And they know they can barely take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I know that you think, and a lot of these people have just really big hearts and they just want to help but you're not necessarily helping. Yeah. But that's a whole... That is a whole different question. Kind I don't of know like, if we even want to go down that trail. You might even just chop that out. <laughs> well, I'll just say that I think that there's, you know, th- there's a validity in the the thought of, you know, it's not really rescue if you're just kind of holding on to a bunch of animals that you then can't care for. Okay. Mm-hmm. But even if we're talking about someone who just has one animal, if they're extremely hesitant to follow their vet's recommendations or very bitter about the cost, you know, if you wanted to address that and not just kind of ignore it or or stay away from the conversation, you know, you could say you could practice ahead of time. Like, I'm going to push back on on what you said, you know, or you're you're asking me these questions and I'm wondering, are you venting or do you want to engage in a real conversation? Like, are you wanting me to answer or Mm -hmm. do you just want me to hear that it sucks? And kind of, you know, getting a feel for what it is that they're wanting from the conversation. And if they're just venting, then you can be like, that sucks and move on. But if they're really wanting to know, then maybe you can lay out for them some reasons. Mm -hmm. And if there's a lot of like argument, you know, after that, then you maybe decide is this a conversation that's improving my quality of life and is satisfying for me? Or is this one that I'm going to go yeah. ahead and bring to a close? Yeah. Is this person receptive to learning mm-hmm. or are they just, are they just talking at me? Yeah. And yeah. if I hear the words, you know, vets are just in it for the money. They're just trying to rob us blind. They're just money hungry. And I'm, I'm like, all right, I got to leave this conversation because I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. Not the case. I also think that there's room in the situation to avoid a conversation about this by setting a boundary. Mm-hmm. And that boundary might look like, remember, boundaries are about what we're going to do. So you couldn't say, I'm going to have a boundary that no one can bring up veterinary medicine, right? Because that's not a boundary because it's not about what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. A boundary might look like, you know, I'm off the clock and I'm really making a concerted effort to keep work things at work right now. And so if I hear the conversation kind of go to veterinary medicine, I'm probably going to stand up and excuse myself for a little bit. Okay. Mm -hmm. If someone comes up to you and is like wanting to ask you a bunch of questions, you could say, you know, gosh, I'm off the clock and I've set a boundary uh, for myself that I'm not going to talk about work tonight. So maybe holler at me with those questions via email tomorrow Mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. So setting a boundary um, might be helpful if uh, that's your goal is to avoid the conversation entirely. Yeah. And I have family members that ask me for, you know, questions about, hey, this is going on. What do you think I should do? And I don't mind answering those questions at all. And nobody in my family has done this. The thing that I've had people that I know have done this to me, but no one in my family, when they ask me for advice, I give it to them. (laughs) They don't do it. And then they want to bitch about the outcome. (laughs) And then I'm just like, well... (laughs) <laughs> um, if you had done what I had said, this wouldn't be happening right yeah. now. 
I don't um, know what to do about that, JJ. That is super frustrating. Well, most of <laughs> I don't, you know, most of the time it's people that's like I've known from way back in the day that I haven't seen in 10 years yeah. that I'm just friends with on Facebook. That's usually the people that happens with and I'm just like, okay, well, no, no. No, yeah. I feel bad for your animal. Yeah, I, I don't, don't feel know bad what for I you. Do from like here, and <laughs> it'll know. probably be a while before we talk again. I don't know. Like I said, nobody in my family has done that. They all, you know, they can ask me questions. Oh, girl, people in my family done that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, just like we're just gonna do a one eighty from what she said, and I'm like, okay. I mean, you got you do you, boo. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's been some of that. I don't know. I'm not, I once, I'm not getting myself in trouble. <laughs> I once had a family member argue with me. Because they kept saying that their dog had milk fever. And I was like, hypocalcemia? And they were like, no, mastitis. And I was like, oh, well, mastitis and milk fever are two different things. And they were like, no, they're not. And was like yelling at me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to leave this conversation because, <laughs> you know, I I don't know what to do with that. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I'm again, a vet. I don't the, know what to tell you. Know, you. You're, you're arguing with someone who's educated <laughs> and knows uh, their shit, but you know better. Okay. Yeah, clearly. Well, uh, let's see. I hope that that is helpful uh, for you guys. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't really know that we have a solid answer other than to pull out, again, your, you know, your assertiveness and boundary setting strategies there. Distress tolerance and emotional regulation skills also come into play. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we've really fully gone over those on the podcast before, but um, maybe it might be good to kind of give people an overview of like what are some basic emotional regulation and distress tolerance like skills that you can pull out in any situation um, to sort of help yourself. Again, the goal there meaning we're not going to make this situation worse. Mm -hmm. We'll process it on the back end, but how can we get through it today to like preserve relationships and have favorable outcomes and not engage in mm -hmm. behaviors that are self-harming or damaging and things like that. So, yeah. okay, well, we'll plan one of those maybe for the next few weeks or so. Sounds good to me. Okay. All right, guys. Well, I'm sure at this point we're out of time. Mm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But if you have questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Sure do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.